This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. waiting for for quite some time has finally arrived for the last couple of weeks there have been all these theories as we played the waiting game when will president trump be indicted well we now know the answer is yesterday a lot of people were uh talking about uh, this indictment in the over the course of the last eight hours among them, uh, star civil liberties attorney Alan Dershowitz was on the Rita Cosby show. I, I think he was on in just eight hours. He's been on 80 shows. I've seen him on or heard of on 80 different radio shows. He was Alan Dershowitz on this Trump indictment. Well, look, when a Democratic elected politician who ran on the campaign slogan of get Trump uh, goes after the man who's going to be running against the head of his party, for president of the United States, you darn well better have the strongest case imaginable. And in 60 years of practicing and teaching criminal law, I have never seen a weaker case. I have never seen a case of greater prosecutorial abuse, certainly since McCarthyism, than this case. This is the weakest case against a man running for president against your the head of your party. It better be a strong case. And instead, it's the weakest case in that. Well, is Professor Dershowitz right? Is this actually the weakest case, as Alan Dershowitz said, you can imagine? Well, we have assembled three star attorneys and legal analysts to give us a little insight. I want to welcome for the hour. We're going to take your questions on the Trump case as well at 800-848-9222. At least as many questions as we can get to, uh, given that we still don't know what these charges are because it's very much a sealed indictment. I want to welcome a very good friend of mine, veteran criminal defense attorney, radio talk show host, and now a star podcaster, Matthew J. Mary. Maddie, it is great to have you back on the program. Good morning. Good morning, Frank. And a gentleman that uh, has been kind enough to lend us his uh, legal expertise from time to time as well is former New York City prosecutor, and these days he's an attorney in private practice, William Igbakwe. William, how close did I come to getting your last name right? You did good. Okay, we'll take it. It is 2 (laughs) a.m. We'll take it. All right, I'm just going to call you William for the duration of the hour, okay? Sounds good. And making his other side of midnight debut, uh, very pleased to be joined by a former assistant U.S. attorney and a top-rated criminal defense attorney, David Katz. David, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. 
It's great to be with you. I'm here in Los Angeles, so it's still yesterday. It's 11 p.m., but great to be with you for the first time. Wonderful. It's great. It's great uh, for us to have you, David. Since um, since you're uh, since you're the the newest to the program, I'll begin with you. We'll give you the courtesy of uh, that we would extend any any new guest. Uh, explain to folks why this indictment is sealed at the moment. Is that something that the prosecutor requests? Is that something that the grand jury determines? Is that something that the uh, judge in the case determines? Why don't we know the charges here? Well, I think that is the norm in New York, but I'm going to defer to your other guests on that. Uh, I do a lot of federal practice, and in the federal practice, actually, this would not be sealed. Um, It would probably be returned, and then unless they were looking to find a fugitive or they wanted to keep it secret because they were going to be doing some searches, uh, it would be unsealed. So this would be very unusual, actually, in the federal practice, which people think of as being stricter and having more sealed proceedings. So let me defer to your New York attorneys on this one. Uh, Maddie, uh, as far as you can tell, why is this a sealed indictment? I can't imagine a good reason why it needs to be sealed. Uh, and I do think that it's in the control of the prosecutor at this point. Certainly the judge who's going to be assigned to the case, if there is one assigned yet, would have no uh, no interaction with this particular decision to seal the indictment. So I, I think it's it's not really rare, that rare, but it's suspicious that this indictment is sealed. And I think that they're kind of bracing themselves for the reaction to this and trying to just get ready for maybe a negative response out in the street. William, as a former state prosecutor uh, yourself in this same state that Trump is now going to be prosecuted in, do you have a uh, a take as to uh, why this is a sealed indictment and uh, how that determination gets made? Well, by nature of an indictment of a grand jury investigation, it's it's automatically private. So whatever is uh, put out there is put out there by the prosecutor. Um, this would be considered what I would call an ex-indictment, which means an individual has not been actually arrested for a crime. They're being investigated, and then an indictment is brought forward by the grand jury. So until um, something is filed, a top count or something like that, it's just naturally secret. And probably, um, again, to the other commentators, uh, the prosecutor wants this as tight-lipped as possible until he has to put something out there. Uh, David, obviously, since this is is a sealed indictment, we don't know precisely what the charges are, but uh, we're guessing that it probably has something to do with the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Based on what's being reported, based on what's being leaked out, what is your best reading on what Trump is likely to be charged with here? Well, my best reading is that it is not the case of overvaluing assets, uh, overvaluing them for banks and insurance companies and undervaluing them for the state or federal tax authorities. That was the case that they were looking at. That's the one that I think Pomerantz was upset that they didn't bring. And so it's, it's pretty much the Stormy Daniels payment. And it's been reported by some outlets that there are 24 or 30 counts. And you can say, well, why would there be so many? But Michael Cohn says that after he paid the 130 of hush money out of his own pocket, basically, then he got reimbursed on a monthly basis. So probably each one of those reimbursements 
is a separate count. And he said that happened, let's say, 15 times or so. And then, uh, you know, one of the questions that I have, and I hope we get to it, is what the statute of limitations is. Well, that was is, my next question. Covers yeah. This. yeah. Right. Well, I, mean, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to dominate it. But the no. question on statute of limitations, I found really fascinating, and a lot of people haven't commented on it, and I'm kind of wondering why. Now, it may be that Michael Cohn says that he still got payoffs, or he still got materials that furthered the cover-up as of five years ago. Um, that that extended past uh, not only 2017, but went to late March 2018. If it did, they tucked themselves in under the five-year statute of limitations and just barely. And that would explain why it was go-go. They weren't going to wait till after Easter or Passover, uh, Frank, but they were going to go-go right now because they just um, tucked in under the five-year statute of limitations. If they didn't, if it's actually been, let's say, five and a half or six years since then, um, that's a really interesting topic. I'd love to kick around with your other yeah, guests uh, uh, about whether they really could extend the statute of limitations beyond five years on this idea of being continuously out of state. I don't see where Trump has been continuously well, is, out of New York. That is exactly the next uh, the next uh, subject that I wanted to tackle. William, do you have any thoughts on the how the prosecutors get around the statute of limitations? Um, and I, I heard someone, I think it was my friend Arthur Idala, who said that Cuomo during the uh, governor Cuomo during the covid pandemic actually paused the statute of limitations on certain crimes. Are they going to try to rely on that to try to uh, find some way to um, get around that five year statute of limitations? Or is there some other factor that's going to allow them to bring this case? Yeah, I guess the the question um, that we're running into, especially you know, how they got around the um, falsifying business records. Falsifying business records is either a misdemeanor or it's a felony, and he would be have to, they'd have to be able to prove that he was attempting to commit another crime, um, you know, in that process. So misdemeanors in New York have a two-year statute of limitation. So it seems like if these actions were sometime around uh, December of 2017, it seems to be a little bit out of out of that space. Um, so yeah, during the the COVID pandemic, Cuomo did um, did pause, I guess, for a bit um, the statute of limitations on New York cases and New York State um, uh, law affected cases. And yes, yeah, state prosecutors use that, especially when you looked at the statute of limitations for um, 30, 30 reasons for um, speedy trial. So it's possible that that could be something that's used. I'm sure that... Can I jump in? Yeah. Frank, can I jump please, in for please, a minute? Please, please, yeah. I, I was reading up on... This is Dave Katz. I was reading up on that, and I thought that Cuomo... There's Some people think Cuomo's order only applied to civil cases, and some people say it only applied for about five months um, overall. So I just wonder what the other guest thoughts are on that. Did it only apply to civil? Did it apply for more than five months? Matty, it was definitely criminal cases. Uh, Matty, okay. uh, any thoughts you have on the, uh, on the statute of limitations issue? Yes, I do. Uh, in a practical point of view, when you look at this case and you look at the timeline of it all, this is an event that took place in 2006 when Trump's allegedly had an affair with Stormy Davis. Then in 2016, there's all this stuff about the payment being made and then the payments to Cohen. When you look at the timeline 
of this situation. There's nothing left to conclude other than this is strictly a political prosecution. Things like this don't happen in the criminal justice system uh, very often, where you have prosecutors bringing cases that are so stale. And you've got to remember, this situation, the Stormy Daniels payment situation, was investigated by the Federal Elections Commission. It was investigated by the Department of Justice. It was investigated by the Attorney General of New York State. It was investigated by Cyrus Vance. And all of those entities chose not to bring charges related to this issue. And even a few months ago, a few months ago, it looked like uh, District Attorney Alvin Bragg was going to walk away from this case. And two prosecutors who were appointed as special prosecutors, right? Special prosecutors, just to prosecute former President Trump, they they were enraged that Alvin Bragg had not moved on an indictment in this case. They resigned. One of them wrote a book criticizing Bragg, and it seems to me he was about to walk away from this case, but he's getting a lot of left-wing political pressure on him. He comes from the, the woke community, and I think that he, he caved in to political pressure and moved forward with this indictment. It's nothing less than the weaponization of the criminal justice system into the political process. And when you mix you know, politics with law, you make, you're mixing horse bleep with ice cream. Uh, David, I, th- I think you heard what I think is likely to be the um, the linchpin of the Trump defense, which is this is a politically motivated uh, witch hunt. Well, what do you say to what Maddie just said? Well, you know, I've been commenting on Trump things uh, when CNN was still in Los Angeles before they moved to Atlanta. I was on Newsroom about twice a, a week, and we kicked around all these things. And um, my thing, Frank, was always not right not left, just right, not wrong. So I'm trying to be just right, not wrong on the law. Like if you went to a lawyer and you said to him, give me your opinion of the legal issues in the case. And so that's why I think that if um, they have a statute of limitations extension, which sounds like it applies to criminal cases, and if it was for five or six months, then the issue is, did the payments to Michael Cohn or did the cover-up go up until five and a half years ago. If it went up to five and a half years ago, right, you have the five years of the statute, and then you add on the six months that Cuomo added for criminal cases to the statute of limitations, and then they're tucked in. Um, You know, whether the case is political or not, obviously, like a lot of people in the country, I worry that, you know, if the shoe were on the other foot, um, or is a Democratic ex-president or Democratic ex-vice president, you know, is Biden or Harris, going to be charged after their time in office with, you know, an offense someplace that they're politically unpopular, you know, Amarillo, Texas, Montgomery, Alabama, right? You start to think of, is this what we're going to have now as a norm? Um, But, you know, um, I also think that a little bit of, you know, the goose and the gander, right? I mean, Trump is the person who ran around and said, lock him up. That was his mantra in 2016 against Hillary, lock her up, lock her up. Um, So there's certainly been a lot of, you know, he, according to Kelly, his chief of staff, he said all the time, why don't we sick the FBI on this guy? Why don't we get the IRS to investigate that person? There's those two FBI enemies of his who miraculously had this super special intensive audit 
that, in my opinion, they've never gotten to the bottom of. So, you know, I, I, I don't really have a political opinion mm-hmm. on it so much, but it seems to me it's, it's fit within the statute if it's five and a half years. And the cover-up that Michael Cohn might have done, the payments that were made to him, they're part of the conspiracy. It's not just the payment that was made to Stormy Daniel in October 2016. It's all the acts that were done in furtherance of the cover-up, right? Let, let, me, get, let me get you gentlemen to pause. Uh, we'll get William to weigh in in just a minute. And then I'm going to ask the members of our illustrious legal panel um, what role this prosecution is going to have in some criminal cases that other people consider to be stronger. The Georgia case, the documents case, January 6th. We'll get into that and a whole lot more. If you have questions about the case, you can dial in at 800-848-9222. Matthew Mary is here. David Katz is here. And William Igbakwe is here. We have it covered from every possible angle. I sure hope that that Cuomo pausation of uh, the statute of limitations uh, doesn't result in, in extending that statute because I committed a whole bunch of crimes back in 2018, and I thought I was off the hook. And to think I have to sweat keep sweating those crimes out that's not something i'm looking forward to doing at all this is the other side of midnight straight ahead it's the other side of midnight with frank morano Side of Midnight, I'm Frank Moreno. For the first time in history, a former president has been indicted. Uh, This happens to be a very unique former president in that he is also currently a presidential candidate. Now, that in and of itself is not unique. We have seen presidential candidates and federal candidates for a variety of offices run for office both under indictment and after actually being convicted. Some people may remember Eugene V. Debs ran for president uh, from prison, actually, back in 1920, and so did Lyndon LaRouche back in 1992. Uh, But I am hoping that um, we will not need to test that one out. Rudy Giuliani, the uh, former president's former attorney, was on with Rita Cosby talking about the indictment a few hours ago. I'm very, very sad, uh, Rita. I I don't mean to overdo it, but I'm very depressed and very sad for the country. Uh, The the statements that were made by Eric uh, are right right on target and some some of the others. I don't know, you know, if most Americans are students of communism. I, I happen to have them because I grew up in the Cold War. I worked for Ronald Reagan on communist spies. This is the Communist Manifesto working itself out in real time. This is what Marx wanted for us. Uh, our criminal justice system has now uh, turned into a state-controlled criminal justice system, controlled and operating for the benefit of the privileged the Democrat Party. Uh, they don't get prosecuted for crimes at the highest level of government involving millions and millions of dollars. And Republicans get prosecuted either for minor crimes that are exaggerated 
or crimes that are made up. And this actually even extends to framing the president of the United States. Uh, what they charged him with is just not a crime. Well, um, it may be a crime, but it certainly is somewhat untested. There is, based on what we think that the former president is likely to be charged with, it's a combination of two crimes. In New York, it's falsifying business records, which is a crime, although only a misdemeanor. And in order to get it to a felony, you have to combine it with a second crime, which they say is uh, a violation of the election law. This was described by even the uh, New York Times as a novel legal theory for any criminal case. And uh, this is not something that uh, anybody has ever been prosecuted under, to the best of my knowledge. Here to help us break down what we can expect in the next coming weeks, months, and maybe years is uh, veteran criminal defense attorney Matthew Mary, former New York City prosecutor and private practice attorney William Ibakwe, and David Katz, former assistant U.S. attorney and a top-rated criminal defense attorney in his own right. William, uh, let me begin with you. Does the fact that there's really no precedent for a prosecution like this, does that hurt Bragg's case at all? Yeah, it makes it difficult. I mean, you have a new prosecutor uh, stepping into this space and taking on a Herculean task and bringing a state criminal charge against a former president who's currently running for president. It would seem to me that because of the status of this individual, Trump, because of the newness of this prosecutor, um, he's got a high task, but it's not an, it's not impossible. But when you look at the if there's any precedent, I guess the closest you can come to is John Edwards. And the uh, it was a North Carolina uh, case. Hush money paid to a, you know, individual they had relations with and they had difficulty prosecuting that case. Um, so it, it does create some difficulty because there's no precedent. Uh, Matty, uh, your take in terms of uh, whether this case will get thrown out by a judge, potentially. It, it, it will be thrown out by any judge who wants to act like a judge. And you could bet your bottom dollar that this case is going to be veered into some political judge who is a pawn of the Democrat Party and who will be afraid to go against the Democrat Party. And the, the sad thing, which makes this a dark day, in, in the law, in a dark day in American history, is that we, as experts in this field, are talking about this case as if it were a regular criminal case. It is not. This is a political case. The criminal justice system is being stretched out of shape here. This is so unusual for to to arrest somebody, to indict somebody for a crime like this so long after the facts that it's clearly political, and it's clearly a weaponization of the criminal justice system. We're in a revolution, Frank. That's what we should be talking about. This is not about Democrats and Republicans or liberals and conservatives. It's about revolutionaries against preservationists. I consider myself a preservationist. I want to preserve 
the Constitution, preserve law instead of lawlessness, preserve order instead of disorder. And this is what this situation is about. It's about creating chaos in the legal system, using the legal legal system for political purposes. And whether you like Trump or you hate him, he's got a right to run for president, and they're trying to knock him out. David, David, uh, even out of office, President Trump has a a big megaphone. He's got tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of followers on social media. And uh, he could call a press conference and be uh, on almost every channel in in the world. I can't imagine that any judge would want the Trump comments possibly prejudicing a jury pool. For that reason, do you think that the prosecutors are likely to seek some sort of a gag order here to stop President Trump from commenting on this case? I think that would be very foolhardy. Um, You know, I I take, you know, seriously the comments of your other guests, uh, you know, about the fact that it is an unusual case. And the John Edwards case um, in federal court never ended in a conviction. And eventually the Department of Justice had to drop that case. And the nation was really upset about Edwards's conduct because this campaign contribution violation was wrapped up in, remember, his wife having cancer, him having given this money from the campaign contribution, sure. a lot more than $130,000. Um, to basically his mistress. And then there was this whole fiasco where he said that the love child was, you know, inseminated by his campaign uh, manager. And that wasn't true. Even with all of that, uh, Edwards got a fair trial and he never got convicted of anything. So it is an uphill battle to try to convict Trump in this case, no doubt about it. And that's why a lot of people think that he was fortunate in a way to have the four investigations against him lead off with the weakest case. I think everyone would have to agree that this is the weakest when you look at the Georgia investigation where he actually made a phone call, which is incriminating into Georgia. And when you look at the confidential documents retention down at Mar-a-Lago and you look at the insurrection and not tamping it down. When you look at those four, this obviously, I agree with your other guest, is the weakest um, case of all of them. But I think that to try to give him restrictions, either travel restrictions or speech uh, uh, restrictions, would play right into the hands of people like your guest who say it's all political. It was all to shut up a candidate who had a good chance of winning in 2024. And so I think he'll have no travel restrictions. I think that it would be foolish to try to give him any, uh, you know, he, it, there are some things that, you know, he can't say. I mean, the thing with the bat and the DA, if he, if he wants to post a bat and the judge on his case, that obviously will not be done and that should not be tolerated. But I think in general, he can say what he wants to say, including the fact that he thinks he's being railroaded and the charges are unfair. And I think he'll be allowed to do that, Frank. I, I just don't think that this will restrict him in any way. And if I, I can say one last thing. They may be playing into his hands because, you know, as a criminal defendant, I think the reality is he can pick pretty much when he wants to go to trial. And there be a, may be a moment when he wants to go to trial. Maybe it's September, right, of next year and sort of have an October surprise, maybe be acquitted, right, maybe have a hung jury, use that to his political advantage. Uh, I don't know. But I mean, there's a lot of things that Trump and his good lawyers, you know, smart lawyers, We'll have to figure out how he can try to turn this to his advantage, not the prosecutors. One of the things uh, David said there, William, which is the uh, general consensus among every legal analyst that I've heard, is that this is one of the weaker potential cases of all the cases that are looking at uh, at prosecuting Trump. Does bringing this case, does Bragg bringing this case 
hurt the other cases that we're talking about here, the federal documents case and the uh, the Georgia case and maybe even something related to January 6th? What's your opinion, William? Yeah, I think everyone is watching and everyone is playing coy. and Everyone's kind of pushing, bragging to the center of the bull ring, like, hey, you know, you go first. Um, I think some one of the unique points that we're dealing with here is that these are activities that Donald Trump committed before he became president. I think that one of the main issues that separates this is that we are talking about dealing with the activities of a man outside of the office, but now dealing with the man in the office, I still think that individuals, prosecutors, law enforcement um, agencies are a little bit coy about bringing an action against activities of a sitting president because it's about the office of the presidency versus Trump himself. So I'm interested to see how those cases, if they actually come forward, and potentially they want this case, the weakest case to come forward, because it could, you know, ice, you know, the the atmosphere. And and maybe these other law enforcement agencies, other uh, cases kind of just go out into the wind. I don't know, uh, but it'll it'll be difficult. Uh, Matthew Mary, a fellow that uh, I'm guessing you've been on the other side of the courtroom with from time to time is uh, Ellie Honig, who has uh, made a, a new career for himself from being a prosecutor to being a, a legal analyst. In fact, yeah, I know at least one case that I watched you and he uh, go head to head on about uh, 12, 13 years ago. Ellie Honig, certainly no fan of Donald Trump, but he said in in his analysis of this for CNN recently, that the key reason that the feds chose not to charge Trump for this Stormy Daniels situation was because they had serious questions about the credibility of Michael Cohen. As far as you're concerned, Maddie, how big of an issue is Michael Cohen's credibility in terms of looking at this case? Michael Cohen is going to be the biggest asset that the Trump defense team has. Having him against you is like having a hundred people testifying for you. It's it's a godsend for Trump that, that Michael Cohen, who's a convicted liar, a perjurer, you know, a, a psychopathic degenerate liar, nothing less, to have him as the star witness against you is the best thing that could happen to any defendant whatsoever. And as far as these other cases that that you think are stronger than the Stormy Daniels situation, all of them, if you take them apart piece by piece, are all weak. That's why nothing has happened so far on those other cases. The documents case, if you indict Trump on the documents, are you going to indict Joe Biden and Vice President Pence? This is These document situations have been going on for decades and decades, right? This is just picking out a guy and trying to fit a crime to him, okay? They're desperate. They're desperate on all fronts to attack him. They're attacking him. And I think people are going to see that this is happening. And a lot of people, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, are not going to like this on Election Day. 
when, uh, if and when Trump is indicted in either the Georgia case or the documents case, we'll have the three of you back and we'll analyze that one. But let me ask you guys a question in terms of the the timing here. Uh, some uh, it, this is actually a question from a listener that they emailed me. Someone on cable said that when a defendant is charged simultaneously in more than one jurisdiction. The prosecutor who brought the first case won't necessarily necessarily try it first, but will, for various reasons, defer to another prosecutor. And that could get around the problem uh, that some people have of the Bragg's case being the weakest and the least significant. Bragg could choose to let Georgia go first or the independent counsel uh, that's uh, bringing the federal documents case go first. Uh, David, as best you understand it, how would they determine if there are multiple multiple indictments, who gets to go first? Well, that's a great question. It may depend whether he has co-defendants in some of the other cases, right? So if there are, let's say, three co-defendants in the Georgia phone call case, uh, one of them might be uh, Giuliani, actually. One of them might be Meadows, um, let's say, and it's Trump. So it would depend on the schedule of Giuliani and Meadows to some extent, you know, when that case could go to trial if Trump's the only defendant in New York in this case, as it seems clear that he is the only defendant, then that might weigh into the balance. In the federal uh, cases, there would be a Speedy Trial Act, which requires trial within 70 days, but it always gets waived. There's always good cause. So I really don't think that any of these cases, any of the other three cases, uh, would get to trial at the, on the track that they're going. I've always thought the Georgia case would have some defendants go first, and then they would try to flip them against Trump, and Trump would be in a second round down in state court in Georgia. And as to the documents case, I do have to disagree. I think it's actually a very strong case and very different from Biden because there was this whole obstructive conduct. There was a false certifications that were sent to the FBI and the Department of Justice. His lawyer down there, Trump's own lawyer, is going to have to testify uh, why that uh, declaration was submitted by somebody else who I think the government sees as being kind of like the fall person. Uh, The lawyer got together with Trump. Trump said whatever he said. Somebody else signed the paper that there'd been a diligent search. There was nothing down there. And then there hadn't been a, a diligent search. And they found lots and lots of stuff. And we all saw it displayed with those um security labels, those red and gold security labels still on the outside, top secret. And of course, the insurrection, everybody has a different view of, but I view the not tamping it down for the three and a half hours after the incendiary speech, after saying, let's all go to the Capitol. I see that as being very important in the case. But that case, I do agree with your other guests, would be extremely divisive. Um, And we're going to have to see. I want to agree with him on one other point, if I might. Um, One of the arguments for the people who say Bragg's case is really strong is if it was really strong, why wasn't it brought by the Department of Justice? Forget about Barr. Merrick Garland was the attorney general as of March 2021. The case was timely. The five-year statute of limitations hadn't run yet. It's pretty clear that whatever Honig says, the Department of Justice didn't bring it and um, Garland didn't bring it. So to the extent that people argue it's a really strong case and we need to wait and see, it may be like a great case with all this evidence on top of Michael Cohn. It wasn't this quantum of evidence enough to persuade a Democratic attorney general to go on it, was it? 
Uh, let me ask you something, William. And, and again, let's hold off on uh, breaking down the documents case and the Georgia case until those indictments come down. And then we will have you guys back and we'll do this again. But um, on the issue of the grand jury, I've been on a grand jury and they tell you every day uh, when you're on a grand jury, what happens in that grand jury room is supposed to be secret. Now, um, how is it that we know all about this stuff? I mean, now, obviously, Trump has tweeted about it or Truth Social about it. But, William, we know a lot about what's likely to come here. In your view, William, where are these leaks likely coming from? Prosecutors, defense attorneys, grand jurors themselves? What do you think? What's your hunch? Yeah, I mean, a case like this, everyone's talking. The entire building's talking. Um, You know, so procedurally, yes, grand jury is a secret proceeding. No one knows, but... Again, in in a case like this, I mean, you can have a number of people talking from the inside. It could be that even within the office, there's a little bit of a leak just to inform. Um, They invited Trump to come and testify in the grand jury. So they were informed a bit, his attorneys, of what was going forward. And just technically, we kind of know who went into the grand jury, Mm -hmm. right? We know that uh, Cohen went in. We know that Stormy went in. There's a few people we don't know that went into the grand jury. But just based off of that, just by Cohen going in, we know, and and Stormy going in, we know it's kind of connected to this activity. So we're able to put a few pieces together what he could be charged with. But again, going back to Cohen being your star witness, the issue boils down to intent. And when you have Cohen who has pled guilty to his own crime separate and apart from activities that he did with Trump. It's going to be difficult for the prosecutors to take the jury to Trump now, as he now says that Trump intended for him to do this because Trump didn't do anything by his own hand. It's always by proxy. And that's what makes these cases very difficult, especially for you know, a very sophisticated actor like Trump. All right. We're going to uh, continue with Matthew Mary, William Ibakwe, and David Katz in a moment. And we will get to your calls. Uh, there's still a few lines open, and we'll try and get to as many of your questions as we can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Georgia courtroom was crowded as Ellie Mae took the stand. She was accusing Reverend Joe Henry of being a no-good preaching man. She said, the Reverend partook of my lovely body. The Reverend said, she lies. The jury said, now listen, I'll do the talking, and the courts will justify. Prosecuting attorneys start pacing the floor, sweating and making threats. The judge's wife sitting back there in the back row said, hey, judge, I'll check. Cause Reverend Joe Henry is a good man. He preached all over the bottom land. Spoke so child could understand. And there ought to be a whole lot more good folks like Reverend Joe Henry. Uh, the great Clarence Carter of Patches fame, uh, one of his great songs about the criminal justice system. You know, Clarence Carter's still alive. We're going to see if we can get him on the uh, on the show 
and let's see if we can do it sooner rather than later. I'm going to make a note to myself to reach out to him next week. We have an all-star legal panel. Uh, we're going to tackle as many of your questions as we can here. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Alex in California. Hello, Alex. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I just had a quick comment and then a follow-up question. So the comment is, uh, the editors of The Economist just issued their response to the indictment. They say that the case is weak and that Alvin Bragg should never have pursued it. Uh, so here's my question. Uh, the Economist is actually popular among people with a college education. Uh, do you and your guests believe that uh, this editorial position is the position of most Americans uh, who are highly educated? Well, I'm the only person here that uh, doesn't have any postgraduate degrees, so I'll defer to uh, the gentlemen that do. Um, uh, uh, Maddie, I'll begin with you. What do you think of what the economist said there? I think I think it's not about being educated or not being educated. It's about having common sense. What we're doing right now is buying into this non-reality that this is a legal issue going on. It's a political issue, and we're talking about it as if it were a real case. When I look at the Stormy Daniels case, the only crime that I could imagine that should have been pursued in this situation was whether or not Stormy Daniels and her agents are guilty of blackmail. This is what normal people would think about. Stretching the law as the law has been stretched totally out of shape is something I think you don't need to be educated to be repelled by. And I don't think a jury, even the ultra-liberal juries of New York, are going to buy into this case. Uh, William, David, go ahead. Can I take a crack at that? Please, please. You know, I'm a federal criminal defense attorney right now. You know, uh, federal income tax uh, cases, uh, people getting loans they're not entitled to. And it is not that uh, – now, you can say that he should not have used his prosecutorial discretion in this case for many reasons, that he didn't think the witnesses were that strong. You know, there's a lot of prosecutorial discretion. Nine out of ten cases may not get brought. But the, the reality is that a lot of cases are brought that are based on falsely signing a piece of paper. And, you know, the prosecution theory, let's give the prosecutor his due. We've certainly said enough critical things about him, and apparently the economist does too – But this was not a legal fee. It was a payoff. It was hush money. It was paid before the election so that people wouldn't know that Trump was an adulterer, a philanderer, and he slept with this porn star at the time that his wife had just given birth. What an inopportune time to do what he did if Stormy Daniels is correct about it. He didn't want it to come out before the election. It didn't come out. Trump won the election. That's a campaign violation because it was something of great value to the campaign. It should have been reported. Even when they filed the reports later on, they didn't report it correctly. They said it was Michael Cohen's legal fee, and he was then paid over $200,000 so he could get the $130,000 back and so he could pay the taxes on it. Now, that is a case that could easily not have been brought. It's a case the federal prosecutors not to not decided not to bring. But to say that it's like not a real case, it's nothing but a political act and nothing about it is a real case. And there is some corroboration. There's the other person that he had the relationship with, allegedly, who had the catch and kill from the National Enquirer. She got bought off and her story got killed. It's sort of a part of the same pattern. And you have Michael Cohn, who, for better or worse, was convicted of it. And the Southern District of New York at the time said 
that Trump was co-conspirator number one, and that it's not rare, it's not rare that somebody who went to jail because they were the errand boy for somebody wants to tell on the person who sent them on the errand and told them exactly what the illegality was. Now, you cannot believe Cohn, but it's not something outlandish that it's not even a case. Uh, William, Frank, Frank yeah, can I interrupt for okay. a second? <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. All right, let me interrupt for a second. Listen, here, here's the proof in the pudding. This case that we're talking about, all right, if Donald Trump weren't the defendant and if Alvin Bragg, a woke district attorney, weren't the prosecutor, there would be no case. Name one other case in the state of New York or any other case like this. There is none. Well, yeah, we made the point that this Michael would Cohen. be a novel a novel prosecution, right? That was the uh, the federal Trump. case. And it's all about the campaign. It's all about derailing Trump. William, unless you want to weigh in yeah. on this, I want to try and cover at least uh, a little bit more ground and grab a couple more quick calls. I'll throw in a quick one. Mm-hmm. You know, being a trial attorney and, and, and the prosecutor out in L.A. did did great. Be, being a being a trial attorney in sales, you, you pick a group of people who will buy your story. This case is in New York County, and Trump's lost a lot of ground from the people in New York. New York County is an educated county, and they're willing to buy this story. And the common sense argument is that he probably did make this payment because he probably didn't want Dormy to talk, and he probably had Cohen take the money in like that. It's kind of easy to believe, and so it has nothing to do with how educated the group is. New York County probably buy that story. All right, uh, gentlemen, um, uh, David says this is very much a legal case. Uh, Maddie says we should not be talking about it as a legal case. It's more of a political case. Sort of the area where legality and politics meet is constitutional law, and I just want you guys to clarify something and just make sure my reading of the Constitution is correct, because Michael Goodwin who's the senior political columnist for the New York Post, very bright man, in his Sunday uh, column uh, on uh, in the Post this weekend, he was talking about all these criminal cases Trump is facing, and he said in his column, conviction in any criminal case could disqualify him from holding federal office, including the presidency. Now, I cited the example of Debs and Lyndon LaRouche, and I, I don't believe that is correct. Can you three gentlemen comment on what, if anything, a conviction would do to Trump's constitutional eligibility to holding the office? That one's easy. He's eligible. Mm -hmm. None of these cases would disqualify him. The only thing that would have disqualified him was the impeachment trial in the Senate. If the Senate had convicted him, then they could have moved on to disqualify him, and that would have stopped him from holding any federal office again in his life. But none of these cases would disqualify him. Um, That's a simple answer. Um, None of these would stop him from running or holding office. All right. Let me try and squeeze in a few more people here. Tom in Boston, what's your question? Uh, hey, uh, I was wondering, is, is there any legal uh, culpability from the Democrats? Remember three years ago or four years ago, they set up a, a taxpayer-paid slush fund to pay off the woman they get involved with? Remember all the Democrats that were paying off these women? I mean, is there a specific case that you remember, Tom? Well, no, no, but there was a lot of them. They, 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 they come out, the taxpayer-paid slush fund, the Democrats are using to pay up all these women. Oh, you're talking about the sexual harassment uh, settlements? Are you talking about that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, anybody have a a comment on that? Be my guest. Yeah, Yeah, Frank. The Democrats are not going to be indicted for anything. (laughs) Excuse me. 
as long as we have Biden as president, Hochul as governor of New York, and we have uh, Adams as the mayor, nobody, no Democrat's going to be indicted for anything ever. The atrocious criminal acts were committed during the election of 2016 by the Democrats and 2020, and it's all swept under the rug over and over again. So well, nothing's going to happen to the Democrats. Well, I mean, and there God are. Forbid, and I, I, I'm, I'm fearful that when the Republicans get back in power, they're going to start doing the same thing to the Democrats. And that's the end of this country. Well, we have seen Democratic officials uh, prosecuted. I mean, we, you know, a long time I, I, ago. well, William mentioned John Edwards, but more recently you have uh, you have, um, you know, the prosecution that the Justice Department brought against Bob Menendez. You have Shelley Silver in New York. You have Carl Kruger. I mean, there are uh, Democrats. Yeah, Anthony Weiner, certainly my colleague, uh, my colleague here. There are Democrats, uh, Jesse Jackson Jr. There are plenty of Democrats that have gotten um, charged with with all sorts of uh, of crimes. Uh, you and either of Years you gentlemen, ago, Frank. Years Frank, ago. Can I, That's can, not happening can, now. Can I, go ahead, David. Go Frank, ahead. Can I say something? Frank, David Katz, can I say something really quickly? Because I think it's important that your your listeners um, know this. And I think all all of us can agree on this. Any prosecutor worth his or her salt is completely blind to politics. I was an assistant U.S. attorney. I was under Ronald Reagan. I was hired by Reagan's uh, U.S. attorney. You know who else worked in that office? Adam Schiff. And uh, he and I worked together under Reagan, under Reagan's U.S. attorney, and we, we turned a blind eye to politics. Now, of course, for Schiff, it was different. He was, it went on to be a Democratic congressman. It's different if you're in Congress. But when he was a prosecutor, when I was a prosecutor, I hope the prosecutors that you guys have seen in court, any of them worth their salt, do not care about anyone's politics. They hopefully evaluate the cases, just whether it's a good case or not. They do have to exercise their discretion, but hopefully it's never based on an improper uh, consideration. And politics is an absolutely improper consideration for prosecuting or not prosecuting. William, that is a little it is a little different, though, when you have elected prosecutors, which you don't have the federal level, but you you have at the at the county level. I mean, your boss in the Brooklyn DA's office had to run for election. And let's face it, in a borough like Manhattan, if you can secure a criminal (laughs) conviction against Donald Trump, that's going to make you pretty popular in when you run for re-election, right? Sure, sure. I mean, assistant, assistant uh, uh, prosecutors, you know, you you keep a straight line. Um, I can't speak for the elected official, but they are, you know, serving uh, on privilege of the citizens, and so there must be a thought at some point, not that it directs you. But there has to be a thought about what does this look like? When I was under the um, I was um, uh, working under Ken Thompson, and this was at the beginning of a lot of police prosecutions. Um, I do remember there was a young man, a uh, young Asian police officer who inadvertently killed a kid. All right. Officer Peter Liang. I remember that. Yeah. And and it was a lot of there was a lot to think about in bringing that prosecution. And I'm sure that there was a thought about this young man in the community he's from and, you know, what this looks like to, you know, the total national politics that's going on. Gentlemen, I don't think it influences, but I think that there's a thought. Gentlemen, we have to end it there. William Ibakwe, Matthew Mary, check out Matthew Mary's podcast, A View from Mulberry Street. David Katz, we're going to have you all back soon. Thank you so much for the time. Get some sleep. Your influence counts. Be sure to use it.